It's November 1st, 2022. I'm talking with Matt McGregor about the week's acquisition headlines, and we'll start with Bill LaPlante on why weapons production constitutes deterrence. And he says, quote, production is deterrence. Um, and guiding that is going to be really looking at, you know, Ukraine and what is needed for, quote, a high-end real fight here. Um, so getting back to relevant hardware and getting that in the hands of the operator He's contrasting that with China, who's really good at modern warfare. Uh, they can do the kill chain. They figure that out. Anybody who says that it's not as bad as you think, you're wrong. <laughs> so that comes straight from Bill LaPlante. Um, I'm actually kind of glad, by the way, you know, I guess when he got in, he was pretty tight-lipped for a while. And then he had that DAU um, article that came out. Now it seems like he's talking a little bit more, which probably makes sense, you know, like get into the weeds of it and then you know start talking. But here's his last quote. Uh, so be humble about predicting what you think you're going to need. What you have to do is hedge your bets, which is interesting. Um, I think he's talking about this in terms of like you can plan, but um, to scale up for a lot of these things, you're just going to have to kind of try things out and, uh, you know, pivot as needed, which is very different than the way Congress likes to think about things, right? Yeah. I, at the same time, though, I do think he's hit on something that the Hill has has been focused on, which is that there's a little bit of a prototype fatigue um, in some yeah. circles. And so I think he's really making the point. And, and I think this gets to what we've talked about before is, you know, uh, you know, into a paycom, they really don't need at this point. If, if you, if you, if you, if you agree with the, with the probabilities that China will make a move, um, you know, in the next couple of years, you know, they, they really don't need more prototypes um, or, or they need to be really operational prototypes. Uh, but it's more about getting the production, getting the mass, um, so that they can actually, you know, kind of wage wage uh, conflict for a reasonable period of time and not run out of munitions and run out of aircraft and you know everything else that they need. So, yeah, I like his point about um, you know about you know res yeah resiliency means you have to pay for it and you have to plan for it. So I think it's one of those things too where we've underinvested. Uh, he even kind of makes the point that we've kind of operated more like Walmart, which is a really good analogy that we've kind of gotten this just in time, a sort of approach, but it just doesn't work, right? When you're dealing with some of these weapon systems that have, uh, uh, you know, really long lead times for certain parts and, and they may even have long production lead times. Some of the missiles, uh, the really advanced missiles do. So, you know, we basically need to get into the redundancy business uh, and realize that those investments are important and, they're not going to waste because when the time comes, it's going to really pay off just like uh, World War II. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard to do a systems analysis or like a requirements analysis. Some, I think some things lend themselves like munitions should lend themselves pretty well to kind of requirements analysis on what you need there in terms of redundancy. It's just really hard to trade that off. Right. It's like some of the big guys, like when you, when you have a destroyer and an F-35, it's harder to cut those things, but it's easier to cut munitions from like, you know, a quantity of X to X minus 10%, right? Mm -hmm. It's easy to make them bill payers. Uh, uh, but, but I also agree with you that this, you know, we were talking, I think last week, right? Uh, John Ferrari was bringing up, hey, we need a lot more production here. The production to R&D ratios are kind of screwed, but, or I guess skewed, not screwed. But I think maybe it makes sense, right? In the late 2010s, we saw 6.4 like get jacked up, right? In terms of prototyping account, there was just tons of money going in there. A lot of the RDT&E budget increases were located in that prototyping account. And 
I think it just makes sense. You got to kind of push the stuff into production at some point. You can't just be fiddling around in 6.4 forever. So that distribution, you know, based on that strategy from the 2018 NDS would kind of signal you would get like a bulge in 6.4 that should kind of move to a bulge in procurement and eventually O&M, right? To some degree. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I think you probably always need a, a good chunk for experimentation and for, you know, for, 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 you know, constantly bringing new things into the pipeline. I think this gets back to kind of our broader point about like, yeah, if you just have these small numbers of exotic systems, it's harder to kind of do that approach where you bring pr- prototypes quickly into production because the requirements, you know, for, for, for these new systems are so, um, you know, arduous that, it's, it's not something you can just kind of quickly do. But if we get to the point where we have more options, maybe, you know, we're taking things from prototype and taking them into development um, and actually letting them kind of, you know, move into that space and prove themselves out and ending things that aren't working. But, but you know, uh, having more uh, simpler systems that you actually can produce easier, more affordable, you know. So anyway, that whole vision that we've mentioned a million times I, I think you need that to really kind of enable um, enable that continuous pipeline where you do you do are continually experimenting, you do have R and D, um, but you also have a good chunk of procurement, and that's always being, you know, always producing something, right? It might it might be this one drone, this next time, and then there's you, you pivot to a different type of drone that has some other capabilities, and you know, you pivot to some other USD from medium to large, you know, whatever. But you're you're always producing something that's operationally useful. So I don't know, at least that's my, would be my vision for it. Yeah. The other part of that is also, you know, if production is deterrent, you have to have things that are producible and reliable and sustainable, like at a reasonable cost. Right. And for the most part, what the requirements process pumps out is not produced (laughs) or is producible, but with very fragile supply chains, very long lead times, very exquisite processes that you can't get a lot of throughput on. And I put up on LinkedIn recently, I saw this funny cartoon where it was like general, basically the American tanks are on trial after World War II and General Patton's like, of course, because the, you know, the Sherman tanks, they weren't the highest tech, right? Like relative to a German tiger, it took three of them to basically take out a tiger by maneuvering around and then hitting it from the rear. And, you know, that's not the most survivable thing. But General Patton's kind of like on trial or is a, a testifying witness here. He says, Your Honor, the defendant got there the fastest with the mostest. The indictment should be dismissed. And I'm just like, yeah, man, <laughs> like that's a good point, right? You need like when in times of scale and emergency, you need things that kind of are producible at a level um, and not super exquisite because you don't want to find ourselves. I mean, we beat Germany not because of our exquisite knowledge and warfighting skills. Is more because we could just put so much into the field and sustain the Soviets, as a matter of fact, right? Um, to keep them in the fight. So, so yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe, hopefully, industrial mobilization becomes cool again, and you know. But it's hard to make those trade offs, you know, because you have to kill force structure or at least like take away from like outputs if you're going to start, you know, scaling up these investments in infrastructure. I mean, maybe. I, I mean, I do think if if we had more affordable systems, right, you, you, you might not you might not have to trade off. I mean, I think we're I think we're trading off force structure with our new commodernization and all these really 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 high end uh, systems. Um, but I don't know. One, one good example that kind of sticks out to me is the 
you know, I mean, right now the Russians seem rather incompetent, but, but you know, they, they, they do have uh, some pretty advanced capabilities. And we just saw one of their flagships and their second flagship uh, in the Black Sea get taken out by some, uh, you know, pretty unsophisticated drones. Um, now, it, it looks like they had some help, but, um, but yeah, you know, they were able to sort of kludge together some low flying and some higher flying drones to, to kind of, you know, I, I don't think the ship actually sank, but definitely took some damage by all accounts. So, um, you know, it's those kinds of things that we need. It, it, you know, it's not like we're going to get rid of all F-35s and some of the other stuff, but it's just more of that type of thinking definitely is needed. And so, yeah, if we had more of that, I think we could probably, uh, probably build up those fragile supply chains because those, you know, we could use some common components and, and across different systems and those companies would know like, oh yeah, there's all kinds of pi- uh, programs in the pipeline that can use this. And they feel more confident about making investments. And right now, I just don't think that happens. I think that's a big challenge in the supply chain is they just don't know where the money's going to go. And nobody wants to take that first step unless they have some assurances. Yeah, but we talked about this again, right? Like the the difference between a traditional prime and their unwillingness to take that risk and, you know, just what commercial companies do every day. But it is a little bit different because commercial companies, you have hedged bets like, if I can't sell to this enterprise, there's other commercial enterprises yeah. I can sell to. It's like right. if I fail to sell to the DOD, there's well, that's the end of the road for me. You have different sales channels. Yeah, you don't have that with, uh, <laughs> with DOD necessarily. All right, sticking with uh, LaPlante and getting things into production, Pentagon shoe LaPlante pushed to get critical tech into production, Defense News. And so this one was a little bit strange, um, but a lot of it was kind of on like the Raider Fund as well. Um, the Rapid Defense and Experimentation Reserve. Lawmakers approved $324 million in fiscal 22, and DOD requested $358 million in 23. Now, this was a little bit different. I, I was looking at the, the budget justification docs. There are at least six accounts now that that Raider is kind of spread out amongst including two OSD, the Joint Staff has their own, OSD has their own, Army, Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps. Um, They all have like, you know, a slice of the Raider pie in their own program elements or even project levels underneath the program element. And uh, yeah, it just seems like it's kind of regularizing, right? Because if if your project and they actually outline, right, like which projects at a lower level they are selecting, you know, if these are getting put into the budget justification documents, and then they'll go execute, you know, whenever appropriations gets passed. And they're already working on the funding request for fiscal 24 Raider, right? Um, probably going to start fiscal 25 pretty soon. So because 24 is going to be going over the hill pretty soon. So it just doesn't feel like it's as rapid as it could be, right? Um, I don't know. I, I mean, they, I do remember when Raider was first kind of being discussed that it, it, it was one of those funds that promise to give multiple years of funding. So, you know, um, honestly, I've seen the list of approved projects, but I don't know the details of all of them. So I don't have a good sense of like how mature they are, but I think the, I think the idea was that they were fairly mature. I know the second round, they're going to be very mature. Um, but I think the reason why they were separated out is I think that is the continuation of funding because they were selected and then I think the follow-on funding that was anticipated to be needed was was actually laid into the different lines. But I don't understand the uh, the committee's 
you know, reason for kind of chopping uh, some of the funding by saying that there's no, uh, there's no transition uh, path. Yeah. There's no defined program goals. Cause I, I don't think that's accurate or, so I don't know what's being shared with the Hill and maybe that's a problem is that this hasn't been transparent enough, but yeah, I don't think that is correct. Um, because I, that ha- that was part of the submission was that you sort of had to have a plan uh, to eventually take it to, um, you know, to scale. So yeah, this, this one's a little bit of a mystery to me too. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense though. It would be good to see, you know, exactly what's going on there. But for example, the Navy, they have a bunch of, they, they actually like outline, uh, well, most, all the services do, but here they have one project called Octopus. There are nine line items that they break that out in terms of cost categories like product development and where it goes to and test and eval. Um, on total, it's $17.5 million. On average, each line item is $1.9 million. So some of these projects are getting reasonable money. Grasp X here is, well, only $3 million. One classified project, $20 million. So, yeah, I think, you know, maybe there is something going on here, right? Like, they're giving a more persistent funding. You're getting closer to that five, ten, twenty million dollar range that helps you kind of get over the hump. And we'll see if Shu kind of has the clout and you know can team with the PEOs. And she she was a service acquisition executive for the army, right? So she knows how that all works. So maybe she's like getting her hands into the service palms and maybe that this expression of Raider is is actually beneficial in that way because it's like, hey, she is actually being able. She's actually being able to impact the palms of the services, even though she really has no authority, right, to do that. Well, I, I mean, it is it is kind of a weird one, though, right? When you think about the totality of the whole process, because the services were the ones that submitted it. So it is kind of funny. The services submitted it to be funded by a central fund, but so they could have funded it themselves, but they didn't, they submitted it. <laughs> and then now that fund, it's actually in their own accounts is being yep. for. So it's sort of like, well, services, you could have actually done this yourself and saved yourself a step in all the work of doing the submission process. And so, but, it, yeah, but they get legitimacy, yeah, right. Fair. To some degree, fair, she, yeah. she provides them legitimacy for Congress Yeah, that's, because that's Congress true. would be like, Oh, you don't care about jointness. You're just doing this stupid stuff that won't transition. And, you know, has no chance and doesn't meet the joint needs. And I think she was kind of giving top cover to some of that. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a fair point. Uh, I, guess, uh, I guess that's the value there. And, this, and the SAC-D, right, the Senate Appropriations Committee, in their report, they were like, yeah, that's, I, I think they quoted it in that article, which was essentially like, we don't like open-ended innovation funds. We need well-justified plans. Only those well-justified things will transition and we see no evidence that like an innovation fund helps. And so that kind of cut at the knees, right? So maybe it was good that Heidi Shu kind of got ahead of that a little bit if it was already going to. Um, which which you know. is a weird, which is a weird kind of position to take given the, uh, right. the rapid innovation fund actually has a fairly good story um, in its history of, of things that transitioned. Um, if you, you know, if you believe their reports, um, and maybe they maybe they do need to be independently verified or whatever. But but yeah, I, I wanted to independently because ver- they had a report. And at the end, they said all of these companies that they funded. And I went through some of them. I wanted to systematically do it. But like, if you just look at the companies and just be like, OK, how much follow on revenue have they done? What are they doing? Did they get sold out? Like most of those companies, they haven't you, you don't see like big growth 
in terms of their government contracts, but it's hard to get at like subcontract and overall revenue. So I had to kind of, you know, it, it definitely is worth a look to see because now there's enough time, right? The Rapid Innovation right. Fund is dead or it's at least defunct. I mean, the authority's there, there's just no money, but there's enough time from 2013 timeframe to 2019 that we can look at it and say, okay, with hindsight, were these things successful or not? You know, because like the, that's the problem with the AFWORK stuff. Um, it's like, well, are things transitioning? Well, it's kind of, you know, a little bit too early to know, you know, like to like really like give judgment, but maybe with the rapid innovation fund, some judgment can be, you know, levied. Yeah, that's a good point. You need like a Ben, ben Van Roo study, similar to the Stubber <laughs> one to really dig in and see if it was... Uh... It'd be a lot harder than the Ben Van Roo. I I love Ben Van Roo, but that was just, he just took the (laughs) Sibbard, you know, the SAM.gov data, but like, this will be a, you'll have to build your own data set, essentially. You need like a Bloomberg terminal for this one. Well, they're not even publicly traded, probably, are they? No, that's why I think it's just bespoke. And then you have to like, kind of trace it to like, who's using it and how valuable is that? Um, So it's really hard to say, you know, it's like, just because you got $10 of of a Sibber phase three, like that doesn't mean you know, you quote unquote transitioned. Actually, that would be a good, it would be good to interview the companies too, to say, okay, you participated in this, you got this. How did that impact your, your, you know, your product lines to, yeah. Did it give you the business that you were hoping for with the idea? Yeah. Actually, actually it would be nice to have a real study on that where you could actually go talk to some of the, uh, some of the executives or whatever that were involved. Yeah, but the, also the issue there was, I think it was limited to three million per person or per company, and then they raised it eventually to twenty or to six million. But for the most part, those weren't like a through the riff. You're gonna you're gonna be like skating on a twenty million dollar or ten million dollar you know amount. Well, this is the problem too. Is you know these smaller things. Um, you know, I was at a conference where the Army Futures three star basically told you know, all these small businesses that he's like, I don't want your little, um, uh, he was pretty, he was pretty frank about it. (laughs) I don't want your little, like, you know, one-off little kind of projects. He's like, I want an integrated solution. And and that is one of the biggest challenges with DOD is that the customer wants an integrated solution with XXX. And sometimes the company only has X and they need somebody else to bring the other X's with it. And, and, uh, you know, in order for it to really get bought. So I do kind of wonder what the riff is. Yeah, it transitioned in the sense that it was recognized as a need, but did it transition to like, oh yeah, we're going to buy, we're going to buy a bunch of these, you know? Like, yeah, I guess it, it, it really does depend on how you, how you define transition, which needs some, probably needs some work to kind of keep a common, common uh, definition for, for that going forward. Well, I think you're going to be be at our GMU DAU conference on Friday, where we'll, we will have Heidi Shu and uh, Bill Plant up there. So maybe you can yeah, <laughs> ask some of those question. questions. I like that. Yeah, <laughs> we will. Uh, next one we got here is Raytheon Technologies. They are surpassing their third quarter earnings estimates. So I think we talked about Lockheed doing pretty well. Raytheon is doing pretty well too. Um, they have an earnings surprise of nine percent. A quarter ago is expected that they would make a certain amount per share. It's uh, a surprise of 3.57% in terms of earnings per share. And so looks like they're far outperforming, which is pretty interesting. I was just listening to uh, Eric Fanning. We talked about this last week in terms of the inflation thing. And Eric Fanning from AIA 
I believe he's at AIA, right? Um, but he's at one of the industry associations and he's also a PBBE commissioner. But he was saying like, yeah, you know, we're, we're hearing a mixed bag from our contractors, but in many respects, a lot of the problems are being manifested at the lower tier level. So we don't hear about them. Someone's holding the bag. It just might not be the primes. Right. And so, yeah, that's it. That's definitely an issue. Yeah, no, that that's, that's, yeah, exactly what we talked about. Was that the air defense and aerospace podcast that he was on? Yeah. With Vaga. Yeah. yeah I hadn't heard, hadn't listened to that one yet, but I wanted to. Um, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I do think we need a deeper, deeper dive in that. So yeah, the primes are coming out okay, but yeah, there's probably other effects. <laughs> well, except for Boeing, but Boeing's losses, I, I'm <laughs> yeah. sure you saw those, right? Yeah. Like 6.8 billion, I believe are the cumulative losses on KC 46, but just for like the quarter, it was like in the multiple billions and they're taking big losses on KC 46. We all know what we talked about them, right? Presidential airlifts, yeah. the, uh, the trainer and uh, what's the last one I'm missing here? The the unmanned, right? The, the stingray, I believe. The stingray. Oh, I didn't realize yeah. they're taking losses on that. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's uh, but that's a different issue, right? That they were kind of getting into these maybe potentially lowballing, uh, you know, fixed price development contracts with the expectation of you know big production and sustainment, but running into troubles. So. A little bit different issues. I'm not so not really sure how correlated that is with the macro environment, you know, macroeconomic environment. Yeah, I mean, COVID probably probably um, hurt hurt them, you know, in the recovery. But yeah, definitely wasn't the only reason. It's all that coming. Before. Oh, most definitely true. But when you looked at it, was like almost. I think they took like a three point something billion dollar loss in the quarter, but you know more than two thirds or three quarters was from the defense sector. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. So those programs, I think, so... I, I think the CEO didn't come out. I think it was earlier this year. And so we're never going to do another fixed price <laughs> contract again, which, yeah, they, they, they're going to have to be, they're going to have to be more judicious about how they, uh, they don't some of this. But that's just honestly not a good look to a degree because like a lot of the non-traditionals are like, I will only do, a fixed price, right? Like hold me to it. Whereas they're kind of signaling, nah, like don't hold us to what we say here because we can't come in on that. I, at the same time, I do, I, I, I'm not a fan of fixed price for, for things that are large capabilities because it's inevitable that you just come upon certain trade-offs that have to be made. And, and when you're in that environment, it makes it super hard. I mean, even on KC 46, like the government had to come in and try to and help solve some of the problems because it was, it was like, well, this is, you know, it became an argument of like, well, is this in the fixed price baseline? And, you know, is this actually something we are responsible for? And it becomes, I don't know. I think it becomes more of a headache. I don't think that you actually get the gains from it in most of the, most of the cases, even with like Raytheon, Raytheon had a fixed price contract on a small diameter bomb too. And, you know, it was, it was killing them and they were taking so many losses on it. And they, you know, moving different teams around to try to help. And it was just like, you know, it, it was, it was creating more angst and more kind of heartache. And the government still wound up paying because we had to delay and we had to, you know, extend out schedules and do all this stuff. It's like, we still, we still suffered with it, but we just didn't have the flexibility to kind of step in and be like, okay, what can we trade off here? How does this, you know, how does this, we were kind of constrained in that fixed price. So I don't know. I'm becoming less of a fan of it. 
But. Yeah, I mean, I got to disagree just because I think that makes sense when you're talking about these total responsibility. Let's just outsource the whole damn development in one big ass contract and you go do it. Yeah, you're going to have those problems. But if you can chunk it down and own the technical baseline to a degree, use more modular contracts in terms of component and time, then you're kind of breaking down that risk, right? Um, and I just think that's a probably a better way to go at it. But the other aspect of that is is just this phenomenon, right, that happens in government contracting where like it's almost like too big to fail or it's just like the losers win. You 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 win by losing, right? <laughs> or by not performing well. And and the the French have this thing they call the responsibility principle that like if you are making the mistakes, you will pay for those mistakes, right? And the government, like, we just can't hold, maybe the, the U.S. government just can't write contracts, you know, that are enforceable. Uh, maybe there's just a problem there, but I don't know. I mean, of course, it's more complicated than that, so. No, I agree I'll... with your tactics. I know you had that in your acquisition next. And yeah, definitely, I definitely agree in most cases. I, I just wonder for some of these type of, you know, it, like we'll see on the E7, you know, like that that kind of aircraft, like, for one, it's continuity of personnel and common vision. And if you have any sort of like change in program leadership or oper operational sponsors, and they come in and they're like, well, you can't have that because that's going to cause this issue. And so you, you start to get in these, these debates about like, oh, this needs to have that. Well, that's not what we had in the contract. Well, we can't accept that with that. And, you know, I, I've just experienced it a number of times on programs where, you know, there's inevitable kind of disagreements of, what is suitable, operationally safe, suitable and effective, depending on who is doing the analysis. So having some flexibility, I, I, I would want that as a program manager. But at the same time, I agree with you. You also have to hold their feet up to the fire for things that, you know, they are responsible for. I think it's just sort of like the ability of the government to be able to flex when they need to, while at the same time holding their you know, holding their feet to the fire if they signed up for something. So it's a, it's a balanced thing. I mean, that is why I like FPIF type contracts because there, there is a little bit more flexibility there. Um, it's not quite as, not quite as locked down, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's tricky. There's nothing easy about it. But in FPIF, you get right back into all the business system type stuff. It's, I know. I mean, I know. It, it works fine for, I guess, primes, but definitely not for, for a non traditional type. No, no, yeah, I definitely, uh, definitely understand why non traditional types <laughs> uh, So the next one we got Admiral Navy C's next step for unmanned and key autonomy contract. And so the next uh, step here, they, at the end of this calendar year, that is for 22. They're looking to uh, get a solicitation out for the autonomy baseline manager. We talked about this several years ago. So it's, it, we talked about how it's going to take a little bit of time, but they want to schedule the winner for summer 23 to do the ground level engineering work. And then, of course, this autonomy baseline manager will kind of help, as we talked about, disaggregate that autonomy system from any one platform or instantiation so that it can be kind of like, government controlled, allow for competition, but also use kind of like enterprise software to kind of be able to use, use that for multiple platforms and get that kind of economy. So looks like, it seems like all of the services are pretty on board with that approach to autonomy. The Army and the RCV, robotic combat vehicle, Air Force and Skyboard. In all of those cases, the government is kind of 
moving towards a more government controlled baseline of the autonomy core system and like pulling that out right from and we i think we talked about that the rcv they in the army they they're using the software acquisition pathway to separate that out and i'm not really sure how the acquisition pathways for the navy are going to kind of run with this but it's not it's not quite a program of record yet so still in the early stages but hopefully they'll be able to kind of accelerate this i hope it's not going to take too long right i think they're doing a lot of things in parallel yeah, I, I think they will. I think they will probably wind up using like the software pathway in a similar way, um, and then yeah, with the with the hardware kind of segregated, they can um, go pursue those. Because right now, like even on the the unmanned program that they do have, the C four I systems are sort of done separately from the from the actual uh, vessel. Um, so I think the Navy's already kind of playing with the model, and I think it will be easier to scale up once they kind of perfect that. Um, I, I am a little worried. One of the things that did, does worry me is just, you know, the Army kind of went out of their way to make sure to adopt the commercial standards for the interfaces where commercial products could be uh, onboarded. You know, yep. they, they definitely do have the machine, uh, you know, vehicle interface, but that's that's sort of government specific. But here they're talking about standards, but they didn't specify, you know, was that going to be a commercially accepted thing or is the Navy going to come up with sort of a, a like a face if you're familiar with the face MOSA standard, um, like something like that for autonomy. So it, I'm still kind of interested to see more details on, on, on how that, how those standards look and, you know, who's controlling them and things like that. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, Army is using the robotic operating system, mm-hmm. like the commercial consortium. I, it would seem that, that that same kind of organization could be used for all the services now. I, well, I think a I lot of the think, same stuff will be basic, right? Like the controls and the security. The raw stuff, though, is really is kind of focused on the ground, on the ground sort of, uh, you know, domain. I I do wonder if the the Navy stuff will be so will be unique in a lot of ways for for that maritime, and maybe there's not as much kind of commercial uh, work in that space. Maybe I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I'd like to see it be similar, though. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're you're probably right because there's just a ton of work in terms of just like how that interacts with like the propulsion system and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just going to be very different than you know those robotic dogs or just like a ve- like a vehicle, right? That's a little bit more you know like a standard commercial car is a little bit closer to an RCV than it is a ship. So I don't know. Maybe they can touch base with the. Uh... You know, drug cartels in Mexico. I think they've sort of perfected the autonomous, autonomous uh, <laughs> speedboats and things like that. So maybe there's a coalition there. Yeah, go in there and capture some of their their developers. <laughs> like, man, how'd you do this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, come back for us. I mean, there's there's something to be said there in terms of like effectiveness. Like the drug cartels are damn effective at doing what they do. Right. Like, and they're innovative and they have tons of ways across. And I think we need to think of like, I mean, what, whatever the operational challenge is, like make Taiwan a porcupine, right? Mm-hmm. You're just going to have to think of that in like a bunch of different ways. And you're just going to have to throw a lot of things against the wall in that respect. Um, instead of thinking there's like one operational plan that's going to defeat China in that respect. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, Iran's, Iran's kind of been proven that for a while. Like, you know, the Navy hates to operate 
you know, in the, in the golf there because they they know Iran's is doing all sorts of things and they have all you know all kinds of little boats and things that you know you know we saw it right we saw it with the USS Cole and you know it doesn't yeah. take a big doesn't take a big vessel to cause some big damage so yeah you're, you're right there's we need some more asymmetric asymmetric thinking for uh, some of these fights. That's also a good point. Like Task Force Fifty Nine. Maybe they don't want to be there, but it's brilliant that they are there and trying these things out with the USVs now mm-hmm. uh, because it just gives them that kind of like back and forth operational experience, learning, iterating, finding out the requirements. I mean, that's the way it should be done. Like you want to have operational exercises and stuff like that. But the closer you can actually get to like some of these adversaries who are going to be like doing innovative things against you, the better, right? Yeah. You want to you want to train like that. Train like you fight. Ryan Fischel had a good article in War on the Rocks on that. So. Oh yeah, so that, yeah, no, it's a good one because remember, remember, like you know, we we had talked about one of the articles before was about the uh, them them stealing the the USVs. It's like, yeah, that's a great that's a great learning. That's a great lesson. <laughs> okay, like oh yeah, we need to do something to keep them from just being able to like pluck these things out of the water. Yeah, so yeah, it's it's learning. It, it's crazy to me that people would look at that and be like, man, this is a huge problem. It's like, no, it's just something that we need creative problem solving like everything else. But to say that we will never have an unmanned surface vessel and it will never be messed with with an adversary is just an absurd thing to say. So do it now, you know, like get that out of the way sooner rather than later. Yep. Yep. Uh, Next one, we got titanium supply chain crisis. What does it mean for aerospace? And so, The titanium supply shortage has really been hitting hard after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And that's because a subsidiary of Rostec, one of the state-owned conglomerates in Russia, um, is a major titanium supplier, particularly in the aerospace industry, uh, which has different tolerances. But in 2006, Boeing selected this uh, subsidiary in Russia as its main titanium supplier and then created a joint venture with them. Um, which paved the way for this quote-unquote titanium valley and Russia's titanium exports tripled um, over the early 2000s to 2010s um, due to a lot of this investment in opening up. Uh, But yeah, this this is the shocking stat here. This uh, Russian company provides 40% of Boeing's titanium needs, 60% of Airbus's, and 100% of Embraer's. That is... Concerning, I'm sure they're looking for uh, alternative supply sources, but those things aren't the easiest to just stand up out of nowhere. No, yeah, Russia's always been uh, a main source of titanium. So, yeah, this is you know, but this is one problem amongst many, right? I think uh, I think a point that that you made in your um, you know things that you've written about about you know the fact that we need we need better you know stockpiling and different things, and that is this is just one example of why we can't have the just in time system because, you know, from a national perspective, we need to have some of these metals we need to be able to access them when we need to and expecting them to be able to come from, you know, being processed or mined in China, processed in Singapore, you know, shipped across the ocean and, and that to be a reliable source of, you know, continuous uh, supply in a, when, when we're in a conflict, is not realistic and we're really going to kind of run up against that. So yeah, this is uh, unfortunately one of many things that we, we, we're going to have to start addressing in the, in the very near term. Another one we got here on supply chain, how three quarters of procurement improved resilience in response to COVID from supply management. And so here's a bunch of stats for you. 
74% of respondents believe their organization is more resilient post-pandemic. 13% say they have fully mapped their supply chain network. The vast majority have partial or limited visibility beyond tier two. Uh, 80%, 82% of respondents in the survey say that they've increased dual use or multi-sourcing over the past five years. And 38% of manufacturing and engineering are bringing uh, operations in-house. That's even more pronounced in the public sector, 40%. And a lot of the other things that they're continuing to outsource are things that aren't really value-added in their chain, including finance, payroll, and actually IT, which is surprising. So I guess for manufacturing and engineering, if they're outsourcing all their IT, I think my assumption is in a few decades, they're going to be gone because like, you're just going to have to build your manufacturing around software at some point, be software defined. So that's a little bit concerning that they, they don't think IT is important to their core business, but maybe it's just like backend business IT stuff as opposed to, you know, really integral to the build process. And so the last one we got here, 40% of respondents have uh, entered new supply markets and 40% of the global supply of semiconductors comes from China. So there you go. Yeah, I guess I, I don't worry as much about the IT thing, only only because the, the DoD is in the same boat. Um, where the, the emphasis is actually on using commercial kind of business uh, business systems for the majority of DoD needs and not trying to do everything super tailored. So I, I think you're going to see that more and more, especially with like low-code, no-code sort of options where they actually can bring in some internal talent to tailor things um, somewhat, but ultimately it's, you know, it's going to be your SAP type, you know, system and things like that, that are going to, you know, you're just going to adopt those business processes um, around your company. And so I think you're going to see more standardization across that. And it's essentially where DOD is moving to. Um, but, but yeah, no, that's great. I, I do love to see, you know, kind of that thinking, you know, for, um, you know, for, for businesses and the fact that they're, you know, bringing in multiple sources and things like that, like that's, that's kind of what's been missing. So that's, that's pretty promising. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I disagree a little bit just from, and it's not their fault, right? Uh, firms are just going to do what firms are going to do. But my presumption is that the firms like Hadrian that are software defined manufacturing things are just going to be able to do it at a much lower cost than these mom and pops with their old CMC machines, right? That are not automated. Mm, so yeah, yeah. I think they're just going to lose um, or like maybe these 54% will lose. But I mean, that's the way that the market economy works like, right? Some some firms are going to be able to kind of innovate their way out and others won't. And we'll, we'll get that that churn. And that's, that's actually a good thing. Or there's mom and pops that they're just willing to operate at a low scale. So they'll do, they'll do, you know, they'll do like a production for, for smaller, you know, those with like smaller scale needs and, and it'll just be, you know, they're not going to grow. They're not going to become, you know, big companies, but uh, we saw that a lot. We did our analysis of the uh, re-entry vehicle. Some of these companies were just small. They had a few hundred people. They were just happy, you know, out some rural area. People were super happy to have the jobs and they were just producing these, you know, less sophisticated sort of parts and just kind of happy about it, you know, like happy with the business. They weren't trying to grow and become behemoths. So maybe, maybe there's sort of a, a hybrid approach where you keep some of the, keep those mom paws in business for some of the, uh, some of the business, but then, yeah, these, you know, uh, you know, the Cadrian type things that they're going to, they're going to be, they're going to be doing the big stuff, the big orders, the complicated orders and things like that. So I don't know, maybe there's a, 
but they'll also be able to do the small problem the flexibility provided by you know yeah. software defined processes will give them that ability to do the small things better than them too because especially for like you're talking about the re-entry vehicle the chris power at hadrian his like line that he always touts is like when you look at the supply industry in, in, in aerospace it was all developed during the apollo era yeah and those yeah. companies are the same it's just like these mom and pops and those guys are about to retire and like sell that thing off and what's going to happen where's that base and the other part there is do you really want to compete on kind of that kind of skilled labor where you're basically competing against the world versus you know upgrading to the the next thing right where where you have like a an asymmetric advantage potentially. So, I, I guess. I, like, I guess it just depends on like as a, from a company's business model. What's what's the minimum like order that is actually worth their their time? <laughs> so it's like you know, do they want to make like fifty parts a year for this one thing? Is that is it even worth them kind of doing the engineering work and mo- you know programming all their machines and stuff like that? Like I know they could do it faster, and more efficient, but is it even worth their while? Like I guess. And maybe it is. Maybe they're maybe they're getting so efficient that it actually is worth the while. But that that's I guess that's something to watch. We'll see if they if they just take over everything or if they, you know, eh, well we need this we need this minimum before we kind of actually go through all this work. Navy to break up some big contracts to increase small business participation, and so the purported rationale here is that they need to break up these contracts in order to get after Joe Biden's executive order on advancing racial equity in support of underserved communities through the federal government. So we're talking about how they want to increase small business contracting, particularly for the disadvantaged firms. And so in order to get get at that, I think one of the things here was that uh, the Navy found that there was some work share agreements that the primes would, would promise to the small businesses, but then end up that they didn't, right? They would only they would outsource to those small businesses much less than they promised in that work share agreement. And then there was no way of monitoring that or making sure they would live up to it. So they would be able to fix that by breaking out these contracts, but also save money through the pass through of just like, you know, the primes are gonna, you know, manage this. You pay the prime to manage it, you pay them profit on top of that. So you can bring that in house. But the real issue is what, are you gonna have more advisory and assistance contracts or are you going to you know increase billets i don't think you're going to do that so that's one of the problems of break as we talked about with like large fixed price contracts if you want to break them out like the government's been doing so much to downsize its workforce and just push everything off onto contractors it's just going to take a little bit different of a i guess a program off the structure in terms of you know the amount of people relative to the obligations yeah, I think it does depend on how they manage it, though. We, we did this on F35, where we went through a process called, uh, we d- d- disaggregated some of the supply chain, mainly because we found that, you know, it, it's kind of a value-added thing, where we found that there was no value being added at multiple tiers of, of the progression. And so we sort of just cut out some of the pass-through, because they were literally not doing anything with the part. They had no interaction with it. Um you know, they weren't installing it, they weren't using it or anything. It was just sort of passing it on to this other contractor. So I think it depends on how you manage it. If, if you're, you know, if it's really just the Navy is now taking ownership or using some vendor to take ownership of that, inspect it, and then pass it on almost like GFE to the, um, you know, then that's what it's going to be. It's going to be GFE uh, passing it on to the vendor and they can kind of work that out. Then I think it's, I think it's probably fine. 
but the government, ultimately the government will have the compliance responsibility to make sure that the parks are meeting the right tolerances. And that's one thing that you don't have to deal with, with, um, you know, with those, with those subcontracts. So yeah, you're right. I think there is some additional workload, but it really just depends on, on which parts they're going after and, and, uh, how they manage it. All right. Next one we got apex raises seed round for mass produced small sats. And so here we got a new new company. Their basic vision here is to create a standardized bus that they can uh, produce in large volumes, but also be customized in a similar way that automobiles are. And so I think the the rationale here, I actually, Ian Cinnamon here, he is the, the co-founder, but he's also the co-host of the Venture Stories podcast, which actually is doing a lot more on aerospace and events. So check check out the Venture Stories podcast if you haven't recently. But he was talking about this and he was just like, you know, a lot of these uh, these satellite companies, when they build these these new, uh, they're really focused on the payload, right? But they're the the bus itself has to come along, and usually they don't really know what that's going to look like, and they have to do a lot of rework. And the vendors who provide those buses are kind of building them by hand. And his vision was just like, hey, look, you know, in the future we're going to have we can't just be building things by by hand for this, we got to have like some kind of more mass production capabilities here. So that's where we're going to go. And I guess the guy was one of uh, the SpaceX guys who was getting Starlink at scale. So looks like he has the uh, the knowledge here. So yeah, pretty cool. We'll see what they do. The thing that really popped out here for me was that Apex, they will differentiate themselves from other small set manufacturers by focusing primarily on commercial customers. Whereas his competitors do extensive business with the Space Development Agency and other government organizations. So, yeah, he's basically saying, I don't need any of that government stuff. I, that's too much trouble. All of my profits and like my future success is going to depend on getting scale from commercial. So, meh. He said in the podcast, he was like, I won't turn one down, but like it's got to be really favorable. You know, it can't be like taking me off of what I'm doing. So, yeah, this one is, this one's interesting to me because I kind of um, and I guess it's just from my interaction with the primes, but they always had what they called standardized buses for for certain payloads, and I guess I guess maybe it was you know it was already kind of pre tailored in a way that I wasn't maybe fully appreciating, um, but yeah, it sort of seems like I, I guess I thought some of this was already being done, um, but maybe it wasn't being done quite to the level of customization. Uh, that they're shooting for here so yeah if you need like uh, you know high-end reaction wheels and you know you need like really high maneuverability um, you can actually scale for the propulsion versus the sensor you know the energy that's needed for the sensor and you know all those kinds of things so yeah it's uh it's amazing that this hasn't already been done but yeah if uh if it's as promising as it sounds uh it sounds like it's filling a real niche so that's, that's pretty cool TSMC says efforts, efforts to rebuild U.S. semiconductor industry are doomed to fail. There wasn't really much more on that, except for <laughs> apparently it was Morris Chang. But um, anyway, like, yeah, so <laughs> that's all he said. I, I want to know why. Right? I've heard some things in terms of just like you need to have like if you put it in Arizona, there's like faults. And like if the, the ground is shifting, that really has a huge impact. And there's just all sorts of like weird things going on that I don't understand in terms of quality control and detailed manufacturing processes. But it is sad that the U.S. share has shrunk from 37% in 1990 to 12%. And 
and the European Union, or at least European countries, or even worse, they were like 40%, and now they're much lower than 12%. So yeah, a lot of it's moving to unstable locations in terms of supply. Well, I mean, one of the things is TSMC was so efficient that I think it just made it, you know, it, it wasn't cost effective to stand up a, you know, a super expensive chip facility. Um, and so, but now, now there's a little bit more impetus. There's other considerations at play. So, yeah, I, I kind of think his, his, his piece about, I think the title may have been overstated. I think his point is that it will not be easy to get to where Taiwan has, has been because he knows how much work went into that to train the workforce and to, you know, yeah, think, have all those considerations and stuff. So I, I think his point was just that it's going to be hard. I don't think he's making the point because we do, we do produce chips. I mean, we do have, you know, we do have global foundries and, uh, you know, and, and Intel and stuff like that. So we, I think we they're only at the seven millimeter though, right? They're not like at the, the three or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So you're right. I mean, some of them, there's still some progression, uh, but I think that article was maybe <laughs> a little hyperbole in the title. Yeah. It, Cause it's like doomed to fail. Like that's a pretty striking title. And then I looked in there. It was just like, yeah, you're, not, you're like... not giving me quotes. You're not giving me like specifics. Maybe this is mis misinformation, malinformation. I don't know. Yeah. That was, that was quick clickbait a little. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's de-clickbait to aerospace manufacturers placing orders earlier to beat parts shortages. And so manufacturers are ordering materials as far as two years in advance a break from the just-in-time models used previously to restrain costs. Uh, so one of the weird things here is they say the average aerospace and defense company suffered an average of $160 million in lost revenue the prior year, according to a survey due to supply chain disruptions. So back on the supply chain, yep. yeah, supply chains being, <laughs> yep. <laughs> Quiet manufacturing revolution that's transforming America. This one, another little bit clickbaity for me. I think it was about a book, though. But there wasn't too much information. They just named a couple of firms that were, were doing all right. But the idea was that America's manufacturing sector actually didn't collapse the way you know the big narratives are. There are a lot of headlines about that, but it's overlooking a resurgence that's well underway. So maybe I just need to read the book. The article did not get me you know, jazzed on. I'm like, oh man, there's this huge resurgence I didn't know about. You know, they just picked a couple anecdotes of firms that did stuff, but yeah. Yeah, I think it's a good it's a good point though that you know there are small scale, more small scale stuff that maybe we give credit for. Um, I, I did like the one example of uh, one company that produces uh, flow control technology that goes into you know uh, all the jars and the grocery store inks and the pens you know, medicine into, you know, gel cap of over-the-counter medicine. So, you know, there, there are some of those things that uh, maybe we just don't really acknowledge. And collectively, it's actually a significant sort of manufacturing capability. But yeah, it's definitely not, I don't think, I don't think we're missing the big, you know, the big manufacturing, the, the large scale manufacturing that we might need in, in, a, in a war type situation. So um I think that capacity is, is missing. And so I'm not sure. Yeah, it would be interesting to read more about this, but not sure that that is replaceable um, with, with these, you know, lower, you know, small scale operations, but yeah, still interesting. Maybe, you know, maybe we do need to give more props to the people that are out there starting up these uh, companies. 
Rocket Maker Rocket Maker Aerojet solicits acquisition offer sources. So as we remember, Lockheed Martin was trying to acquire Aerojet for four point four billion. That was blocked by antitrust regulators. Looks like they're on the market. They still want to sell to somebody. Um, and just that that news that Aerojet is looking or is soliciting acquisition offers, their shares jump seven percent. Um, so I think their actual market cap is around three point eight billion or something like that. So it's yeah, we'll see what, what happens with them. Yeah, it's so surprising to me that they. I mean, they have a unique niche, and I mean, I guess they, they meet the vertical, you know. Um, integration piece is so attractive in terms of like efficiency. I, I guess that's why the, the, the market is so optimistic about it, but it does seem that like, why can't they, why can't they just continue to produce some of the demand is there? It's, well, the know, market is optimistic because companies overpay in their yeah, acquisitions, right? That's, that's like that's one of the models, yeah. like that's always been an econ, like when we look at them, companies overpay and usually those acquisitions don't work out that great, but um, so maybe that's why, because a 4.4 billion sale to Lockheed would is a price premium, right? Relative to even where it is today after that price jump. So it's a really question of what would they get sold out for, and is that attractive? And but yeah, I agree that it's it's funny that the antitrust regulators are like, yeah, let's we don't want this because of competition. But reality, you know, like when you look at SpaceX, they're very vertically integrated, and that yeah. is a lot of efficiencies. And so that means like customers are getting the deal. And so antitrust regulators in many cases are actually anti-consumer, which is kind of sad, you know, but I, I think that's just the way regulators work in all sectors, even in the defense sector, you know, they, they kind of aggrandize their own power um, for one reason or another. I mean, the sad even, state of it was that they approved some things and then they, and then they all of a sudden they realized late in the game, oh yeah, I guess we're consolidating here. Well, yeah, they didn't so, just realize Lena Khan came know, in and yeah. she <laughs> yeah. she had her random ideas about like how Amazon is, is one. But there's another example like, OK, Amazon has power, market power. Um, it's not a traditional way of thinking about antitrust in terms of like, you know, what's yeah. their HHI index and stuff like that. But um, I don't know, like Amazon, I don't have to go to Amazon, but people go there because it's so convenient and it's a good price and they're, they have good customer quality, right? Like, and if they weren't doing that, you could go to a million other places. So I'm not really sure. I guess it was mostly on the, the seller side, right? Not the consumer side that they were worried about Amazon. Yeah. They were promoting their own products and yeah, like starting to develop new products. They saw something that was successful, but yeah, that seems to have died down. I know Warren, like Senator Warren was kind of big on that, but I haven't heard much about that in recent, recent, recent days, but. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think you're right. I think, it, you know, at some point, maybe this will break loose and they'll let Aerojet um, sort of work, a, you know, work, a, work a, a merger and acquisition. Because at some point, if they're continuing to try to try to find a suitor, um, someone, someone's going to have to make it through. They're not going to be able to deny everybody at some point. But it's, uh, it'd be interesting to see what happens there. I mean, who's going to be large enough, but not kind of like, upstream integrated enough i mean boeing's not going to buy them raytheon's not going to buy them lockheed can't buy them northrop probably it's going to be, be one of these hermius type type uh, type operations you know hermius i mean not hermius well hermius isn't going to want them because they're no, using no, I know. very there's different not tech the, but. not them but i mean like like that you know there's going to be some company that 
just finds a niche and is like, you know, like SpaceX, right? And it's like, yeah, you know, I can make missiles really, uh, really cheap in this super modular, you know, quick production way. All I need is a jet. And maybe they can make the case for, for an air jet, but I don't know. Yeah, SpaceX doesn't want them. Everyone else is too small to afford. Like all the other non-traditionals are going to be too small, right? To buy four point four billion on VC funding or something like that. Well, if they look too desperate, maybe they're maybe they're not going to be bought. <laughs> they're going to get low, some lower bids if they look like nobody wants them and they're they look like they're you know trying to sell. It seems. Yeah, like I wonder that. why they want to sell so bad. Yeah, right? that's that's what I, I I'm still struggling with that because they have their business is not. I mean, they have a million different customers that, that yeah. want their products. Yeah. And there's pretty soul. It's not like other, you know, rocket motor company. I mean, maybe Namo, but like, I think they're pretty locked in on some of these programs. Yeah. Yeah. They're reliant on them for the, for some of these little jet engines. Right? New next generation air dominance fighter re- renderings from Lockheed. So we get some uh, visuals of their, I guess, idea of the next generation air dominance we saw that picture of an upside down one that they're going to take out for a radar cross-section test but no one says out loud whether lockheed is kind of like the ngad 2b but i guess this is just like more fuel on that fire dorthrop actually puts out a bunch of stuff but they got the b21 so what we got here a tailless design um that has cropped up from the ngad adjacent artist concept art uh, it's very low observability. It's stealth, considerable internal volume for fuel. So the blended wing provides that volume, fuel, weapons, and sensors, and a high degree of efficiency. And so the manned element of NGAD is not really a traditional fighter. Range, payload, and low observability are certain to take priority over maneuverability. Hmm, sounds like the B-21. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's just I, like I a smaller it. B-21. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I don't get it. I'm, I'm still struggling with NGAD. Yeah, I mean, if okay, so priority over maneuverability is just never intended to get into a dogfight. Um, I don't even think that for if I was really intended to get into a dogfight, it, right? it has angle of attack, it can do it with, ang- with its angle of attack, but it's not, it's, yeah, it's definitely not uh, optimized like the F 22. Have they got the gun working on those? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they got it certified. I mean, but it doesn't have it, has like it has a minimal amount of, amount of ammo, so. It's not, it's not gonna be a, not gonna be a long fight. <laughs> but I heard the B and C models. I think, or at least the B model, it had like a pod on it, right? It wasn't it like did. an internal carriage. Yeah, the Marine Corps and Navy wanted a pod. They like the pods. Yeah. But. All right. Well, that's all we got time for this week. Thanks, Matt. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks, sir. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.